Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Thirty-seven-year-old Maureen wore dark hair short, trimmed around the ears, and a little spiky on top. She grew up with her brother Wayne and sent money home to their mother whenever she could. Becoming a nurse and working at the Los Angeles County Medical Center in California, Maureen was highly regarded for the compassion she showed her patients. And while her superiors and co-workers reaped praise on her, it seems Maureen had another side. One that was much more sinister, with no regard for human life. In 1983, Maureen was jealous of Dwayne Bell, he was a private nurse who worked for an elderly patient. It was a job Maureen desperately wanted. So she approached her co-worker and close friend, 32-year-old Jimmy Flores, to take him out. She offered Jimmy money to disable Dwayne, maybe break an arm or a leg so he couldn't work. Jimmy recruited two people he knew, and in April, they showed up at Dwayne's apartment. They knocked on the door, and when it opened, they attacked him, fast and furious. Court records revealed that Jimmy tried to break Dwayne's arm, but was surprised by his strength. As Dwayne fought back, Jimmy slashed at his face, throat, and chest with a knife before running off. Much to Maureen's disappointment, Dwayne showed up for work the next day, she then ordered Jimmy to call his patient's home and make threats against Dwayne. It worked, and Dwayne was fired. And Maureen got the job, working nights and spent her days at the hospital. Not far from Maureen's home, she saddled up with a drink at the local bar. There, she met Stephen Elridge. Steve was 27 and a self-employed landscape architect. When Steve needed a place to stay, Maureen made him an offer. For $10,000 and a promise to do some renovations, she would sign over 50% of her house, and they split the mortgage payments. Maureen was in debt and needed the money, and Steve readily agreed. In December 1984, Maureen and Steve agreed to take out a $100,000 life insurance policy with each other as a beneficiary, so that if anything should happen to one of them, the other would be taken care of. Soon after, Maureen began plotting. It didn't take long before she and Steve weren't getting along. Steve complained about the untidy state of the house, and he didn't like Maureen's cats and dog. Maureen shot back that she didn't like the way he treated her pets. Steve started making plans to sell his share of the house. 
in February 1985, Maureen told Jimmy about the life insurance and said she wanted Steve dead and offered him $50,000 to kill Steve. She had it all planned out. He had to be stabbed with a knife because a gunshot would be too noisy. She wanted it to appear as if Steve had been targeted as a gay and requested his masculine parts be removed because she thought police wouldn't spend as much time and energy on investigating a homosexual murder. Over the next few weeks, Maureen arranged for Jimmy to stop by the house when she wasn't home, and Steve would be all alone. Jimmy showed up, but got scared and couldn't go through with it. Maureen set up another date. Jimmy was too frightened. She set up a third date. He chickened out again. Exasperated, Maureen suggested that if he couldn't do it, he needed to find someone to help him. But that he couldn't tell them about her. She didn't want anyone other than Jimmy to know she was involved. In March, Jimmy reached out to two acquaintances, Marvin Lee and his younger brother, Dondell. He told them an organization had hired a hit and offered them $3,000 each to watch his back. On the evening of March 21st, Jimmy, along with Marvin, banged on the front door. When Steve answered it, they told him someone was trying to steal his truck. This momentarily startled Steve. Jimmy and Marvin didn't waste any time and forced themselves inside. Jimmy used a knife to threaten Steve and forced him to crawl on his hands and knees to the bedroom, told him to take off his shorts and lie face down on the bed. Marvin wandered off to another room and returned with a two-foot-long piece of bedpost and used it to strike Steve on the head. Then Jimmy slashed away at Steve's back and butt, making small cuts. But in a surprising move, Steve was able to push them aside, jumped up, and ran out of the house yelling. Jimmy and Marvin took off. Steve called 911 and returned to the house and waited for help. The Los Angeles police responded and saw Steve sitting in his underwear, covered in blood. An ambulance took him to the hospital for treatment. The next day, Maureen was again disappointed to learn Steve was still in this world. She called Jimmy and told him, We are going to have to do it again, and this time you can't fail. Steve returned home. He confided in a friend that he felt safer when Maureen was home with him. The professional nurse and compassionate roommate took care of him and bandaged his wounds. All the while, going down to the street to a payphone to call Jimmy and plan their next attack. Over the next month, the calls flew back and forth between Maureen and Jimmy. She told them that she objected to Marvin joining them in case he told anyone. But Jimmy reassured her they could trust him. On April 28th, 
Jimmy met with Marvin and Dondell and offered them money to kill Steve. Then Jimmy called Maureen several times to work out the details. Maureen told them she'd leave the bedroom window open for them and that Jimmy would tie her up and either knock her around or cut her with a knife to make it look like she was the victim of a robbery. That night, just after 8 p.m., the three men entered the house. Jimmy walked down the hall and into Maureen's bedroom. Steve wasn't home yet, but she told them to go ahead and cut her on her leg and breast while they waited. That way, it would look like Steve had come home in the middle of a robbery. Two and a half hours later, Steve returned home. It was just after 10.30 p.m. Jimmy handed Dondell Maureen's rifle. As soon as Steve entered the house, he was grabbed by Marvin, put in a chokehold, and dragged down the hall to a bedroom where Jimmy was waiting with a knife. He stabbed Steve multiple times and kept thrusting the knife into him for a total of 44 times until his body collapsed onto the floor. Steve died at 27. Meanwhile, Maureen, who was still in her bedroom, intentionally banged her head on a table. She wanted her injuries to look convincing. When Jimmy walked in, she proudly asked him how it looked. The three men were about to leave when they heard Maureen yell out, reminding them to sever Steve's masculine parts. Jimmy returned and did just that. Afterwards, he placed the body part in his pocket and strode out. Maureen waited until midnight, then filled the bathtub with water and called 911. When police arrived, she told them she'd been taking a bath when she heard noises in the house. So she got out of the tub and walked into her bedroom. There, she was greeted by three robbers who demanded her jewelry and money. She claimed one of them slapped her. Then they beat her until she fell unconscious and that she'd just come to. The Los Angeles Times reported that when paramedics arrived, they noted Maureen's injuries were minor and didn't require treatment and turned to leave. But Steve's body hadn't been discovered yet, and Maureen panicked. She told them that she was going to vomit and headed to the bathroom. As she walked down the hallway, she pointed to blood drops and commented it must be from one of the cats. One of the paramedics wandered over to investigate and followed the trail of blood right to Steve. Maureen was then transported to the hospital by ambulance. They determined the cuts on her body and bruises around her left eye were minor, and she was released. Back at the house, investigators thought it was odd that the robbers hadn't taken valuables that were in plain sight. And an officer noticed the bathwater was still warm. After 90 minutes of Maureen being unconscious, the water should have been cold. Things weren't adding up, 
and it didn't take them long to come to the conclusion that this was a homicide, not a robbery. And they wondered if the previous break-in at the same house was now related to Steve's murder. At Steve's autopsy, it was determined that any one of the 28 stab wounds would have been fatal on their own. The other 16 were merely overkill. In May, police arrested Maureen and questioned her, then released her without charging her. Then police brought Jimmy in for questioning. He was interrogated and released. Maureen may have thought she was in the clear, but police continued their investigation. They kept digging for evidence and waiting for someone to crack. Another month went by. Then police arrested Jimmy and charged him with first-degree murder. Jimmy had lots to tell them. He wasn't going down alone for Steve's murder. In August, Maureen traveled 2,800 miles from the West Coast to the East Coast to see her mother in Philadelphia. Police arrested her during her visit. Maureen was charged with attempted murder and murder with special circumstances for lying in wait and murder for financial gain. That meant... She could be facing the death penalty. Maureen pled not guilty. Marvin had been picked up on an unrelated offense and was in police custody. He confessed to his part in the murder and was granted immunity for agreeing to testify against Maureen. A year later, his younger brother Dondell was in custody at the California Youth Authority when he agreed to testify against Maureen and also received immunity. This case dragged on. In July 1989, four years after Steve's murder, Jimmy agreed to a plea bargain. In exchange for testifying against Maureen, he pled guilty to first-degree murder and was spared the death penalty. Maureen's trial began in February 1990. The prosecution presented Maureen as two people. One who was compassionate and caring. The other who was evil and manipulative and whose greed led her to commit murder. Maureen's defense lawyer put Jimmy on the stand and drilled him for eight long days. Numerous co-workers testified that Jimmy was a habitual liar and that they were shocked Maureen had been charged with murder. Maureen did not take the stand in her own defense. The jury deliberated for five days, then announced the verdict. Guilty of both the murder and attempted murder. At her sentencing, Maureen's lawyer said she should be spared the death penalty because in jail she was considered a model inmate and that she'd even saved another inmate from choking. Her attorney went on to say, and I quote, She is already dead as far as freedom. The only question is, when will she physically die? 
She is never going to have privacy the rest of her life. She's not going to go for a drive. She'll never see the ocean again, nor will she ever have a chance to see the stars. Every day, someone will be telling her when to get up, where to go, when to go to sleep. The prosecution stated, Nobody with a heart or a soul could possibly have done what Maureen did and recommended the gas chamber. Maureen now spoke for the first time and told the judge, I want you to know I have no fear of dying. However, I wish not to die in vain. I have sat in this courtroom and listened to the district attorney verbally rape me, and witnesses perjure themselves. I did not kill Stephen Elridge, and I had nothing to do with the murder. As tears flowed down her cheeks. The judge sentenced Maureen to die in the gas chamber. She was now the second woman sentenced to death since California's death penalty had been reinstated in 1978. Maureen later told the media that she did not fear death, but feared the spectacle of an execution. The dying being surrounded by dozens of witnesses would be barbaric, and that it was sick they wanted to see life leave another human being. The death penalty still exists in California, but no one has been put to death in the last 17 years. California is looking to dismantle its death row isolation and integrate inmates into the general population. As of this writing, Maureen has been on death row almost 33 years. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Michelle Avila. Karen, Laura, and Missy grew up together. They were close like sisters. The besties shared Barbie sleepovers and giggled about boys. But in high school, Karen and Laura became jealous of Missy, and they decided to confront her. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>